Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Histories, Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Daduchu. Jem Daduchu. And if you haven't worked out by either this or the name of this podcast, we're doing James Bond this time. Bond. James Bond. Because, yes, No Time to Die is out. And therefore, we are going to be talking a bit about the history of Bond because, in a way, James Bond ties up all kinds of British history, but also film history as well. But... If there's one thing we know about James Bond is he's a spy. Now, actually, that's debated within the community, but it gives me an opportunity to talk about espionage through the ages because it's by no means a 20th century phenomenon. So lots to unpack this time round. And I just want to sort of put it out there. There will be no spoilers for No Time to Die. I will be mentioning it. I'll even be talking a little bit about its design, but nothing about plot, as it were. So you've still got plenty of time to do that. I will, however, be dropping in spoilers for other James Bond movies, but nothing more recent than Casino Royale. So you've had 16 years to... To, to see that one and if you're going to say you're a Bond fan you've had more than a decade to see it so that's on you really let's get on with it James Bond first appeared in a novel called Casino Royale in 1952 and it was written by a man called Ian Fleming I had an idea for a novel a spy story to end all spy stories Ian Fleming was to create two icons of cinema, different and the same all at the same time. James Bond is his most long-standing, most impactful creation. But the other one was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty 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 Bang Bang. Bang Bang. And if you think about it, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is kind of a steampunk version, or I guess diesel punk version, of a James Bond car. It's just one big gadget. Only with music accompaniment to it as well. So there we go. Uh, you know, Ian Fleming certainly did make his impact on cinema. And he did live long enough to see at least the first Bond film come out, Dr. No. That was based on the book Dr. No from 1958. 
And the film came out in 62, and Fleming passed away in 1964 at the age of, I believe, 56. He was in his mid-50s. He was a heavy smoker, heavy drinker. You'll see photos of him. I think he's trying to look mysterious. He does look quite a lot like Roald Dahl. He's a sort of thin man. He's not a particularly physically impressive man. And he's quite often sheathed in wreaths of smoke. I think it, that makes him look cool and mysterious. Often he's got a cigarette inside a cigarette holder, which is just not a thing that anybody ever uses. Indeed, you could argue that's the sort of thing that one of his villains would use rather than James Bond himself. So Fleming, interesting character. He was obviously a big writer in the 50s, but like people of his generation, he was involved in the war. And actually, he was involved on the espionage side of things. My name is Commander Ian Fleming. He worked on something called Operation Goldeneye. Does that sound familiar to you? Interestingly, when he sort of retired after the war, when he sort of like finished with Britain after the war, he, he moved to Jamaica and his home was called Goldeneye. And of course, there is a Bond film called Goldeneye. All of this is connected. What was Operation Goldeneye? It was actually monitoring Spain during World War II. It's worth remembering that while Spain, we now know that Spain was never involved in World War II, but it had had a civil war just before World War II and quite frankly was a dry run for the war where things like Blitzkrieg and mass bombardment were honed by the Nazi regime and Wehrmacht and Obviously, you had Stalin interfering in there as well. The Spanish Civil War is a horrible part of, of history, a very complex part of history, where literally there are three or four different sides fighting against each other. It wasn't just like, let's say, the US Civil War, where it's North versus South or something like that. There were multiple different groups with multiple different goals fighting in that. But it was basically won with the thanks of Hitler by General Franco, who stayed in power for decades, well after World War II. A fascist dictatorship in, in Spain is sort of a weird thing to say in the 1960s. But yeah, it was there in the 60s. But anyway, the point was, there was a concern that would Germany pull a Napoleon and end up invading Spain anyway? That could have happened. Or indeed, Franco just throwing his lot in with Italy and Germany and saying, all right, fine, we will, let's say, attack France from the south or whatever. Or, you know, start helping with the North Africa campaign. All these things were genuine concerns. Only hindsight tells us it didn't happen. At the time, it was a very logical thing to happen, but it didn't, and that's what he was involved in. And if you like, this is the thing. Fleming in the real world shows you how unrealistic James Bond is. And something else I'm gonna be mentioning a little bit later on, Jason Bourne as well. Because what you have in modern espionage is you have the intelligence officer where they have an opportunity to gather together the information. Full disclosure, because I have a degree in archaeology and medieval history, a potential job I could have done out of university was working for GCHQ, which is basically the British spying headquarters because they liked people with a historical background because an awful lot of codes are based on common, easy to get books. You know, the, the problem with something like Catherine the Rye or something like that is it might not be in the bookshop, whereas there's always a Bible. And there are certain other texts as well that if, if you were to find them just lying there, you wouldn't necessarily be suspect for them, but you can therefore use them as a type of cipher, a code. Wait, wait, wait a minute. All I said was good morning. Precisely. The code. 
<laughs> it is now 27 summers since Comrade Malensky stood slightly to the left of where you are now and told me that one day a man would come into this shop and give notice of his allegiance with the phrase, Good morning. And so the intelligence officer is always looking for the communication and the hidden meaning between various targets or various peoples of interest. Okay, it's obviously got a lot more complicated since the rise of the digital world, but that still happens right now. This is why people are talking about online security and safety and things like that. And there is a debate, a very powerful debate about something like an iPhone, where basically an iPhone or any kind of smartphone, basically its coding means that unless you have the passwords, it's going to take a very, very long time to, to break in. So there's this argument about maybe we should have a back door to these things so we can quickly get into bad guys' phones. And the answer from the likes of Microsoft and Apple is like, if we have a back door where anybody could get in, A, a hacker will find it, and B, governments where we would like people to have secrets from the government will not have secrets from that government and then you know, we're just helping oppressive regimes track down people who are trying to fight for their basic human rights. So it's an interesting debate to have. But the thing is, that's what these people do. Then, if you're going to be extremely effective at combat, it'll take just as much training to be good at close quarters combat, use of pistols, various shaped explosives, basically breaching, using things like charges to break, break open doors. If you speak to somebody in special forces, they basically, they always say about putting in shaped plastic explosive charges to blow open a door. They say, blowing open the door's not the problem, but doing it with such little explosives where the door opens without it slamming back in your face, that's the skill. And it's like, okay, fair enough. That, that's, you know, that's interesting to know. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. So these people are just as skilled, but using very different skills. So to quote the CIA about Jason Bourne, Jason Bourne is two people in one. We don't have surveillance ninjas. Basically, you have surveillance and then you have the, you know, surveillance finds out where the bad guy is. They work out the layout of their home and then you send in special forces to breach that place and take down the bad guy or grab the intel, whatever it may be. But one of the most realistic depictions of that is the now rather forgotten film Zero Dark Thirty, which is the, the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And it was hugely controversial when it came out. There were some people saying, this shows you that torture works, and other people saying, this shows you America to be just a bunch of evil torturers which gets nowhere. Interesting how the same scene could be seen as both pro and anti by different groups. I think that's probably a sign that it's an interesting movie to watch and make your own decisions about. But absolutely critically, you've got the surveillance people and then they are forever sending out the guys with guns and beards to basically capture people or take down people etc because that's how it really works so james bond is either a pencil pusher or he never does any of the surveillance work and he's just sent in to to get the job done and that's going back to the very beginning of this that's what i was saying there are purists saying oh you know people say Oh, he's the worst spy in the world because everybody walks in and goes, oh, Mr. Bond, the usual kind of thing when everybody walks into a bar. Yeah, but the thing is, he's not really a spy. If you look at the films, and particularly if you, if you ever want to read the books, more on that in a moment, the point is, 
he's the blunt instrument you I mean they literally say that in Casino Royale the, the first Daniel Craig movie in 2006 you know you're a blunt tool Bond this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand so yeah, he's the guy who has a license to kill. He's the guy you send in to kill the people and not necessarily to gather the intelligence and things like that. There are a few examples of him actually doing spycraft in the films, but not as many as the shooting, because let's face it, that's the cinematic stuff. So, the books. Ian Fleming is not a good writer. But he came up with a great idea. Also, you could argue that his books are very much of their time, which is a way to say that reading them now, they're problematic in so many different ways, and, and far more than the movies even. For example, there is the fact, in inverted commas, that gay people can't whistle. That's how you can tell if somebody's gay. Now, I have lots of gay people in my life, and I can assure you that they can all whistle. Actually, a couple of them can't, but then again, a couple of my straight friends can't either, because you have to learn how to whistle. But yes, I have assure you, I have seen a, a gay man and a gay woman being able to whistle. It's not a thing. The other thing that he started spreading, I don't know if it literally started with him, but certainly it was him spreading this myth around that has made it cling on to this day. There is something that you probably believe that is utter garbage. I'm sure you don't believe the whistling one. In fact, that might have been the first time you've ever heard it. But the other one is that if you cover your entire body in paint, all your skin with some kind of paint substance, your, your skin needs to breathe and you will die of a form of asphyxiation. The girl's dead. She's covered in paint. Gold paint. This is garbage. I've literally heard people in theatre saying, oh yeah, they've got body paint on, but don't worry, we keep the small, their back open so their skin's able to breathe. So this is somebody talking to me like they're trying to do somebody a favour, but it's like, no, there's no scientific... Please, if you're a doctor, confirm this with me. I'm at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. Therese Redacted. You are a doctor, maybe you want to confirm this? I assure you, I mean, the thing is, of course, that when you're swimming, for example, your your body is covered in water, but it's really your mouth and nose that are doing the breathing, okay? You can hold your breath underwater. It's not because your skin's covered in water that you're unable to breathe. You You know instinctively that's not a thing. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about the movies, shall we? As I said, the first one that came out was, weirdly, not the first novel, that was Casino Royale. It was Doctor No, a later novel, and that got turned into the first film. And they picked an ex-bodybuilder who also spent some time being a milkman, who was Scottish, being the first James Bond, Sean Connery. And it's interesting, in the, in the book itself, he's half Scottish, half Swiss, but brought up in England. So in, in essence, he's very much like so many imperial people, where are they 100% DNA British? No, no, they're not. But because they've been put into the system, like Eton, for example, we, we, we know that at one point Bond as a, as a kid was in Eton. You know, this is the quintessential imperial school. It's, it's a certain level of elitism, and not just in terms of connections and money, but also in terms of education as well. Bond is a very educated man. And there are lots of people out there in history where there's a little part of you thinking, why are they putting so much effort into the British Empire or Her Majesty's Secret Service when they're not actually 
British themselves. But the, it seems to me that once you're sort of part of the system, you quite like the system. This is an example of soft power. I, I have mentioned it before where, you know, you get heads of states from sort of countries like Saudi Arabia and other places that went to university in Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, spent their, their years in boarding schools like Eton. And it, it's so important because it creates a connection that people can see things from the British point of view. But there's an interesting point. 1962, we now get Bond coming out. But if you think about what else is happening in Britain in the 1960s, is we get the Beatles and we start getting the Rolling Stones. We get this wave of, of British influence of music and movies and a, a sort of like entertainment and art. All this kind of stuff, you know, suddenly the swinging 60s, groovy London, all this kind of stuff means that Bond is part of this. But also in a way, when you start thinking about, well, hang on, if you think about the hair and all this kind of stuff of the, you know, particularly in, you know, a few Bond movies in, like once we get to, to Goldfinger, for example, he actually is looking like the dads. He's sort of like suit and tie. You know, he's he's not sort of like sort of scruffy counterculture and if you like bond quite often is the dad to the son who's being brought to see the bond film as some people said bond wouldn't have worked a few years you know even just a sort of a decade earlier because at that point the british empire was still very much the british empire by the 1960s significant chunks of the british empire had been dismantled everybody knew britain wasn't what it was in terms of power and yet it was it was cool. So it was the sort of thing where Bond could have had power, but he doesn't have real power. And so it wouldn't have been quite the same if in 1962 it was an American spy who'd come out because while America was cool, America was also a little bit scary and sort of 50% of the world was suspicious of America. Whereas if you like by now, the Union Jack had almost become a fashion accessory rather than a sign of imperial domination, which it had done just 20 years earlier. So it's a, it's a really interesting sort of socio-economic, socio-political viewpoint about how sort of Bond came out at exactly the right time where he could be powerful but not intimidating and instantly turn off an international audience. That's the important thing. Bond, if it was only ever the British audience that Bond was catering to, we would have had two movies and that was it, game over. They were expensive even back in the day, and nowadays they are just absolute behemoths, but they are, you know, nowadays generating a billion plus at the box office. And, you know, everybody around the world kind of knows James Bond. They will see an ex-Bond actor and shout at them, hey, James Bond. They know it. They've seen it multiple times. So a bit about Bond history is we, of course, as I said, we originally get Sean Connery. You expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And he does a, a whole bunch of movies, hugely successful. Everybody loves him, but he's kind of getting a bit tired of it. And here's an interesting fact. Sean Connery, from Doctor No onwards, had a toupee, okay? That isn't his real hair, which is why he suddenly loses it in the 1970s, and we see him in various films in that, and go, oh, what happened to his hair? Well, it, it kind of was never there. But, you know, people start getting a bit older, and so they take the big step in 1969 of removing Sean Connery, and they bring in George Lazenby for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. My name's Bond, James Bond. Which was a complete failure, both critically and commercially, when it came out in 1969. Now, 
People have gone back to Honor Majesty's Secret Service and reappraised it. It was trying to do something different. As I said, there's some spoilers for some of the earlier Bond films. So here we go from one from 1969. In it, he, you know, there is a Bond girl, Diana Rigg. But unlike, you know, all the bevy of beautiful women that Sean Connery has been through, he marries Diana Rigg. And then Diana Rigg is killed at the end by Blofeld. And a lot of people have said it's got some of the best music. We have all the time in the world. We have all the time in the world. Beautiful jazz piece. That is interestingly used in the new Bond film. You know, so it's kind of a, a sad, melancholic. I mean, particularly in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he actually, George Lazenby says to her as he's clutching his dead wife, he goes, doesn't matter, dear. We have all the time in the world. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. It's a really touching human... It's the most human moment in Bond up until that point, and people didn't like it for that reason. Also, George Lazenby. This is the other thing that people are saying right now with No Time to Die. Yes, of course, I'm doing this because No Time to Die is out in the cinema, right? You know, hopefully the hashtag will get us a few more listeners. If this is the first time you've listened to one of these, no, not every single one of ours is on Bond. But what I do is I take a piece of pop culture, just like James Bond, and I show how there's real history sitting behind it. Hey, I've already mentioned the Spanish Civil War and a little bit about World War II. A little more on that in a moment, okay? But hey, look, maybe you want to listen to the one on Scooby-Doo or Lord of the Rings or, you know, we do so many different ones out there, okay? Please enjoy them. Halo, if you want video games, Assassin's Creed, we do all kinds of things. Songs like uh, Madonna's Vogue, lots of different pop culture, but Bond's a great place to, to do it, and why not do it now at the moment? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So back to George Lazenby, you know, he makes one comment. He goes, this never happened to the other guy. So in other words, it's acknowledging somebody else has played James Bond, but that's it. This never happened to the other fella. We now just get on with the rest of the movie. And when people turn around and say, oh, you know, who on earth could follow up Daniel Craig? This is a game that has been played for nearly 50 years. The last Bond was great. Who could possibly fill in their shoes? And they usually get it right. But with George Lazenby, who was an ex-model rather than an actor, they didn't get it right. I mean, he looked good. He wasn't the best actor. And the film was perhaps too experimental. So they didn't want to derail James Bond. And so they went back to Sean Connery. And like I say, this is an important piece of cinema history because there was something called the studio system. What would happen is a studio would spend substantial amounts of money to develop a beautiful young woman or a handsome young man into an actor. But you're then owned by that studio. You know, you have to now do seven movies with us. And, it, you know, you don't get to pick the films. We get to, we, we think you should be in a Western. This I'd hate Westerns. I'm allergic to horses tough you're doing a western so they didn't get paid quite as much well certainly didn't get paid anything like a, a modern actor even if you take into account inflation but also you, they had far less control over themselves it's almost like they were owned by the studios but connery was out of contract he was a free agent and now the studio desperately needed him to come back and so he got to negotiate anything he wanted and he managed to make a fortune when he came back in 1971's very average bond film diamonds are forever which by the way has a horrifically horrific depiction of uh well it's very homophobic basically and, and this is the thing when i was showing my kids goldfinger I mean, people say Goldfinger is a stone-cold classic. I'm going to say all Bonds are of their time. And the reason why we love Daniel Craig right now is because he's of his time. I'm a big fan of Pierce Brosnan. More on him momentarily. I keep, keep saying in a minute. You get the idea. But the thing is, right now, Daniel Craig seems so us. But I guarantee in 20 years' time, people still, I'm sure, love Daniel Craig. So he was one of the best ones. But we've now fallen in love with maybe one or two other Bonds since then. And and Daniel Craig looks, you know, by then the special effects look a little hokier. The, the costumes look perhaps a little bit dated because things move on. If it's all trying to be achingly of the moment, then that's going to age. For example, in Goldfinger, there's this moment where he talks about how you should never drink unchilled champagne. He goes a bit like, not listening to the Beatles wearing earmuffs. And at that moment, you think, ah, Bond isn't very cool then, because the Beatles are clearly very cool. But to the parents who were there in the 60s watching Bond, they would have chuckled because they would have considered the Beatles noise, okay? But the other thing that happens is this woman comes up to Bond while he's talking to Felix Leitner, and, and, so, and she tries to ask what's going on. Literally, James Bond slaps her on the bottom and says, don't worry, guy talk. Uh, man talk. At which point I felt obliged to pause the movie and explain to the children that you do not treat women that way. But this is the thing, you know, there, it is horrifically sexist, well into the 1980s. The way women are treated are utterly disposable. Perhaps Diana Rigg was the best treated, but even then she was just the prize to be won as it were. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. It's racist, it's sexist, it's homophobic. This stuff hasn't 
aged well. But because, you know, this is an example where Bond's bigger than cancel culture. People sort of say, okay, yeah, there's that, there's that bit. We, we're not allowed to like that bit, but we're allowed to like the rest of the film. For example, The Spy Who Loved Me. We're now into the Roger Moore era. And this is the thing. In the 60s and 70s and early 80s, nothing out there was close to Bond in terms of the stunt work, in terms of the grand ambition. You get something like The Spy Who Loves Me, where that opening scene where somebody literally, this, there's no CGI, there's no trickery to this, somebody skis off, well, yeah, James Bond, allegedly, but somebody skis off a real cliff kicks off their skis, opens up a parachute, and it's a Union Jet parachute. That is an amazing stunt, both then in the 70s and now in the 21st century. Also, the stuntman who did it lied and said, of course I've done this before. He'd never done it before. And if you watch it again, one of those skis he kicks off comes dangerously close to piercing the parachute canopy, in which case Bond and the stuntman dies, all right? The thing is, though, you go from Sean Connery's kind of gritty, kind of Daniel Craigie, but then we get to Roger Moore, who's having a lot more fun. And you could say Bond, as I said, you know, in terms of espionage work, there's these two sides. With Bond, there's these two sides. He's dangerous, but he's suave and sophisticated. And I would say Sean Connery was definitely dangerous, but he wasn't very sophisticated. With Roger Moore, He's, he's suave. You know, he's got, he brought fun to the franchise. He did some great one-liners and, you know, some little winks to the camera kind of thing. It's almost like comedies. And this is the thing. This is the problem that not everybody watches the Roger Moore movies anymore. And I tried showing the kids recently the first Austin Powers movie. And they've seen a few of the older Bonds. They've seen Goldfinger, as I've said. But they didn't get the riffs of Austin Powers at all. We gave up after about 20 minutes into it. They'd only laughed once and they would go, what is this? They don't understand 60s counterculture style and just found him irritating and it wasn't funny enough to keep, and they didn't realize it, it, you know, it was very clever parody. But as a lot of people have said, Bond has already been parodied in Bond by Roger Moore. I'm now aiming precisely at your groin. So speak or forever hold your peace. So for me, and I keep saying that like the, the father-son thing, I remember the first Bond film I got to see as a kid, and I was pretty little, was Moonraker, which is widely considered one of the worst Bond films. It's ridiculous. Bond goes in space. It is Bond's reaction to Star Wars. But the set designs are second to none. However, I remember the sheer joy of sitting there between my two parents watching a Bond film in the cinema for the very first time. I also remember how furious my three-year-old sister was that she wasn't allowed to come as well. She was just beside herself in rage. She, she still remembers this as a fully grown woman. But anyway, the problem then comes in the late 1980s where Bond is still kind of using the same formula as the 1960s, but by now the rest of cinema's caught up. You know, we've had the commandos and rambos of this world, but more importantly, we've now got things like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard where the human beings aren't quite so muscular and far more like Bond. And so we get... 
you know, Timothy Dalton, again, my sister, big Bond fan, she always said, Timothy Dalton is a great actor. And if you watch him again in Bond, again, he's more of a Daniel Craig type character than a, certainly a Roger Moore type character. But the problem is, as my sister said, he was a victim of bad movies. He's He himself is not a bad Bond. And I would absolutely agree. And nobody's going to turn around and say that Timothy Dalton's a bad actor. He brought what he could to it, but he was kind of hampered by it, it was the AIDS era. So he wasn't allowed to sleep with all the girls. And we didn't quite know what to do with the movies. And yes, as I've already mentioned, playing playing with the Mujahideen, which could become potentially the Taliban. So there was that. But now we're getting these sort of like decent American action movies and Bond's beginning to look a bit staid. And then critically, we get the Schwarzenegger film, True Lies, which is basically Schwarzenegger doing Bond, only better than any other. But, you know, James Cameron knows how to direct a film and it's pretty much better than any other James Bond film in terms of action. And, you know, it's already been announced. Pierce Brosnan's going to be out in the new Bond film. It's like, apparently they watched True Lies and went, oh my God, we're going to have to up the game in terms of action, aren't we? And good job too, because GoldenEye is a stone cold classic. People have now completely forgotten about Pierce Brosnan because of Daniel Craig. Pierce Brosnan was a great Bond. I genuinely think he's the only one that was both dangerous and also suave and debonair. For England, James? No. For me. Craig, again, is more of the dangerous rather than the suave and debonair, as I said, you know, blunt tool, etc. And it was with, with Pierce Brosnan that we get Judy Dench as M, admonishing him, going, you know, you're a dinosaur, you know, you're a misogynist, and you're sort of like railing at him about his heavy drinking and things like that. So very much bringing him into the, you know, you know, bringing him into the 20th century, or late 20th century, the, the 1990s, let's at least say that. But then there's this sort of false narrative that the last Pierce Brosnan movie, Die Another Day, in 2002, was such a disappointment that Casino Royale in 2006, that's what saves the day. Daniel Craig has resurrected it all with in 2006. Now, make no mistake, Casino Royale is an amazing film. But Die Another Day, people forget, that's the one with Halle Berry in it, and she was great in it. And, you know, there's the great hovercraft chase across the minefield in it as well. There's a very interesting idea that he's sort of like caught and tortured in that film. There's lots of good stuff. The stuff that people don't like is the terrible CGI windsurfing bit and also the way too silly invisible car. Maybe you've been down here too long. The ultimate in British engineering. You must be joking. But putting those two things to one side, it's a decent movie and more importantly, it grossed a ton of money. Bond wasn't on the ropes. It had made a load of money, but they recognised that they had made it perhaps a bit too silly. And then, if you like, just as Pierce Brosnan's bonds were a reaction to these big action movies like True Lies, like Commando, like Terminator 2, etc. Other action people are available. Die Hard, for example. But then we get the gritty action film, the Jason Bournes. As somebody once put it, Jason Bourne is Bond for the Guardian reader. And I, I love that as an idea because Jason Bourne is constantly conflicted. He's very much sort of socially aware. He's not going to sort of sleep himself around. He's he would never say sort of like racist or sexist things, but he does get to kick the bells out of people and kill lots of people. So it's kind of like, you know, for the modern sort of like socially aware generation, Bourne is perfect. And again, clearly with Casino Royale, they were going, okay, we need to make Bond a bit more like Bourne, which is a, a bit of a shame, but it's led to this brilliant, brilliant bit where you get 
In the first Daniel Craig film, it is like Bourne. It's quite clear that he is new to being James, well, not James, but 007, okay? By the way, 007, if you ever got a number with 00, zero and then the number in front of it, we would just call it seven. Just putting that out there, that that really, that, that'll annoy you now. It's going, oh yeah, that, that's right. Why do they keep saying 007? It's pointless saying it. But anyway, when it comes to Daniel Craig, he starts off and it's, it's almost grounded. It's almost believable, okay? But as it goes along and he gets older, we start getting Spectre being introduced. We get Blofeld eventually introduced. And then when we get to No Time to Die, we finally have the layer. We have not seen a Bond villain layer since the time of Roger Moore, really, okay? But these sort of super brilliantly designed layers that couldn't possibly exist in the real world, that would have looked awful in Casino Royale. But because we've been with this Bond for five movies for 15, 16 years, it was never meant to be quite that long because of the, obviously, the delays of COVID. But, you know, for the record, No Time to Die has opened huge. So that it was a good job that they waited because it cost them a ton of money, but it looks like it's going to make them a ton of money. And it's also been really well reviewed. But what made me smile, it's like, so this has gone on a journey where Basically, by the last Bond movie with Daniel Craig, in essence, visually at least, it could be in there with The Spy Who Loved Me or, or something like that. It's like, you know, we've got the layer, we've got the bad guy. Personally speaking, by the way, I would say that, uh, you know, again, putting the hype to one side, No Time to Die is an excellent Bond film and it's a great way to sort of like send off Daniel Craig. However, it's not a perfect Bond film. Usually one of the things you want is a, a really great villain. The villain is pretty sketchy here. Sorry about that, Rami Malek. Don't quite know why you're doing what you're doing. And also the, the Kabuki mask. What was that all about? We never found that out. Why you were walking around right at the beginning. No spoiler. Right at the beginning. Walking around in the snow wearing a Kabuki mask. Never explained. Okay. Very cool visually. Why? So he is the one who takes it from five stars to four and a half stars. But yeah, it's a four and a half star. It's you know better than the vast majority of Bond films out there. Please go check it out. So I wanted to finish off with a little bit about history. Now, obviously, I've talked a bit about history, Spanish Civil War, generally how do spy networks operate, etc. But spying is as old as civilization. And so like coding things is as old as civilization. Two ancient Greek kind of elegant ways of, sort of sending secret messages to avoid all the spies out there. The Spartans basically had a strip of leather, which they would write out the message, but in between they were just like random stupid letters, which meant that if you just looked at the strip of leather, it would make no sense to you. But then what happened is at the other end, somebody had a kind of hexagonal rod that you would wrap the leather around it. And because of the, I knew the shape and dimensions of your rod, uh it meant that I could now see, you know, the strip of leather as it went down, it spelt out certain words. Really clever, really like that one. You get the Julius Caesar replacement cipher where basically the, the letters are all jumbled up. But one of the other things is you get from ancient Greece, which are quite light, is you tattoo onto a slave's, you, sh you get a slave, shave their head, tattoo message onto slave's head, wait for slave's hair to grow back, send them on their way. It's genius, it's, it's nobody is ever gonna suspect that. 
it takes a very long time to send a message because it's going to take a few weeks, well, maybe a couple of months for that slave to have their hair to grow back. But of course, nobody's going to suspect a slave passing on sensitive information. Also, chances are the slaves are illiterate and you can't really see the top of your head. There's just so many clever things about that apart from the time it takes. But there are, you know, throughout history, there are multiple examples of people spying on each other, spy networks. You know, just think of Renaissance Italy, for example. But then you get something like the Queen's Code, the classic example of the Tudors, where Francis Walsingham was basically the head of security, head of the secret police, in essence, for Queen Elizabeth I. And they knew that Mary, Queen of Scots, which was Queen Elizabeth's cousin and you know, therefore potentially had a claim to the English throne and she also had a kid, which unlike Elizabeth, and she'd been deposed from Scotland and now under captivity in England. All this made her a potential rival to Queen Elizabeth I and she was sending coded messages which were being intercepted by Walsingham. But the problem was they couldn't crack the code. And here's the thing, Elizabeth was in a bit of a dilemma. If she arbitrarily kills Mary, Queen of Scots, then, well, if you can arbitrarily kill one queen, what's to stop you to kill another queen? So she needed proof. So Walsingham had to get a code breaker in. He actually came from modern day Holland and he managed to crack the code and it proved that there were discussions about deposing Queen Elizabeth. Now, for Mary's fans, they'll turn around and say she was just merely a pawn in the game and she wasn't the one who instigated this plot. But to most common sense individuals understanding what it was like in the 1500s, you don't send coded messages unless you uh, want the plot to happen. And more importantly, there's nothing in the paper saying, no, 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 don't do that. I'm completely loyal to Elizabeth. If you do that, you know, even if it's like, I'm terrified of being caught, so please leave me out of this. Or, or even like, you know, I'm a you know, noble woman, and she is a noble woman, and I would never do anything to harm my cousin. No, she never said any of that stuff. She basically went along with it because people of power wanted power, then and now. And it was interesting that one, even when they had the proof, it took her a week or so to sign the death warrant. Elizabeth was not itching to do this. She, she clearly knew the implications of executing a monarch. In the end, it took three blows to eventually remove her head. Not a nice story. But there's another example there. So kind of wherever you are in history, how much is written down about this stuff, that's a different story. So you see, Blackadder, Field Marshal Haig is most anxious to eliminate all these German spies. Filthy Hun weasels fighting their dirty underhand war. <laughs> Unfortunately, one of our spies, splendid fellows, brave heroes, <laughs> because it's spying and spycraft, we have huge gaps in our information. But People spying on each other happened all the time. A, a great example from the Battle of Thermopylae, you know, the whole 300 Spartans, all that kind of stuff, is that there, you could say this is spying, you could say this is scouting, kind of the same thing. They basically, there were some Greeks who sort of were spying on the Persian camp and they were caught and they were about to be executed, but the Persian went, no, no, no. Uh, basically, some Persian officers went, don't do that, don't execute them, show them around, show them how many men we have, how few their point of trying to hold the hot gates are. Walk them round, show them the hundreds of thousands of men we have and send them back terrified. Very clever, like that one. Sun Tzu, the art of war, classic ancient Chinese instruction manual on how to fight war. It has all kinds of elements of espionage in there. Indeed, it's led to some people to hypothesize that actually 
Chinese war, there was so much espionage that actually not many people died. That's absolutely refuted by the actual facts, but it does show you how influential Sun Tzu is in, in terms of assessing Chinese history. There you go. And, you know, we can keep going. I, I'm just going to sort of like jump into the era of Ian Fleming and talk about all the activity. Churchill loved the idea of special forces operating during World War II. And this is the time when we get the invention of the SAS. And they spent you know, their first campaigns were actually in northern Africa. And they were there to basically destroy as many airplanes as possible driving around in jeeps with heavy machine guns mounted on them, very useful. The SAS were actually disbanded at the end of World War II and weren't reintroduced until the Malaya emergency in the 1950s. And since then, they've always existed. And as I said, they're the blunt tool you send in that the espionage people, the surveillance people will find out the information and then you send in something like the SAS or Delta Force or whatever, SEAL Team 6, etc. But the other thing I loved about World War II and the British is, you know, they had all these clever little things. That, I mean, when Fleming was clearly influenced by the gadgets of World War II. There was a tiny little pistol that could, I mean, tiny, that could fit inside a box of matches. There was this thing, particularly with the British Secret Service, about putting things into things. For example, putting a small radio inside either a loaf of bread or a big pile of cheese, okay? Clever, that's quite clever, okay? Putting a mine inside camel dung for the North Africa campaign. People aren't, aren't going to suspect camel dung, you might step on it, although why you'd want to step on camel dung, I don't know, but then you've sort of blown your foot off and now you've got sort of problems. My all-time favourite is, for some reason, I still cannot work out why, they decided to put a Sten gun inside a real dead fish. I don't know the practical applications of that, but that was a thing. So there was spying all the time. You know, we all, we're all aware of the French resistance constantly doing sabotage. By the way, sabotage is a French word, and that's because during the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the workers wore wooden clogs, which were called sabots in French. And what they would do, because, you know, these machines were doing the work of 10 men. So what would they do? They would chuck their heavy wooden clogs into the machinery, into the workings of the machines to jam them up, make them break. And so that was sabotage. You know, they, they were breaking machines with clogs. And I can't do a better example there of spycraft or espionage than the origin of the word sabotage than telling you about clogs, okay? So that's me done on this occasion. I really hope you enjoyed the Bond stuff. Actually, sorry, no, I am going to give you one last fact because I meant to do this earlier and I forgot to tell you. So the people, the, the interesting thing is the people from the 1960s and 50s that you see in things like war films, they were actually in the war, you know, a bit like Ian Fleming was, okay? But the irony is those war films have looked very dated and clearly aren't very accurate. These modern war films, be it you know, Dunkirk, 1917, Saving Private Ryan, you know, none of those actors were actually combat soldiers, but they look more realistic. But the, here's the thing. So David Niven is apparently one of the people that Ian Fleming based James Bond on, who was a genuine Secret Service operative during World War II. And he wanted Niven to play Bond. And he even got to play him in this terrible 60s comedy thing with multiple James Bonds called Casino Royale. Made after Fleming died, 
It's got Peter Sellers as James Bond. It's got David Niven as James Bond. And it even has his son played by Woody Allen. It's not a good film. It's a total mess of a movie. I just digress on that one. But the other one I just wanted to say is Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee also worked special for... He is a fascinating man. Yes, he was an actor for 50-plus years, doing hundreds of movies, lots of different... You know, he is a Bond villain. He was Scaramanga with three nipples. And he also played the definitive Dracula. And he was a bad guy in the Star Wars movies and a bad guy in Lord of the Rings as well. But here's the interesting thing. In Lord of the Rings in a, a, a scene that's in the extended edition but was not in the original cinematic edition Saruman who was played by Christopher Lee is killed by Grimma Wormtongue at Isengard not the same thing in the book they just had to wrap it up in the movie and anyway what Peter Jackson said to Christopher Lee is okay so Grimma's going to come up behind you and he you know pretend that you've been stabbed in the back and you need to let out a shriek and Christopher Lee turned around and said that's not the noise somebody makes when you stab them in the back no further information given. We do know he was special forces in World War II, but that is just badass. So, yeah, Christopher Lee perhaps should have been playing James Bond rather than Roger Moore. But I digress. Great man, great amount of work done in the past. Please, if you haven't seen much in the way of Christopher Lee's work, treat yourself. That's it. Now, properly it from me. Hopefully, see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.